When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything you're talking about in football. I mean, McGarry with me as always is Duncan Castles, our transfer guru. Today we'll be bringing you exclusive news from Manchester United, Everton, Chelsea, Paris Saint-Germain, amongst others as well. And as we've mentioned before, it's awards season and the donkey is back. Let's start, Duncan, with uh, news from Manchester United and Old Trafford. Uh, after his two-goal brace against Roma in the Europa League semi-final, Edinson Cavani has been talked about a lot by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with regards to whether he'll be at the club next season. It's our information at the Transfer Podcast that Cavani has been offered a new one-year deal on very similar terms to the one he is currently on, which considering he's a year older, is actually unusual. However, he has been uh, also offered a improvement in bonuses for both uh, performances uh, and appearances made, as well as any trophies that are won, which could actually increase what is already an extensive salary by around two to three million pounds more should it indeed be a good season for United in the next 18 months. Duncan, we know that, and we have reported on the podcast, that uh, Solskjaer is looking for a number nine who will be a 20-goal-a-season man for them because something they've not had in quite some time. Do you think Giovanni suits Solskjaer in the short term, um, even if they are paying him a lot of money? And also, despite the fact that the player himself has some doubts about staying in Manchester as he would like to return to Argentina. Look, this is a complicated one, um, not least because Edison Cavani is clearly not plan A for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, Solskjaer wants Erling Haaland, who's currently being marched around Europe by Mino Raiola and his father. Um, and would cost 30 million euros a season net as a salary if Raiola and Haaland's demands are met. A massive commission for both of them. Um, bonuses for Haaland and the, the not uh, unimportant 180 million euro asking price that Borussia Dortmund have put on the player, which Raiola is suggesting could come down to 150 million euros um, when it comes to doing the deal. That's what Solskjaer wants to do. That would be the long-term solution for Manchester United. Um, Build a team around Haaland. There are other clubs in Europe who are talking about doing that. He is a very good fit to the way Manchester United, the way Solskjaer has them playing. You can see Haaland with his very individualistic style dropping into system which is built around um, creating mainly on the counter-attack good balls through to forwards to, to take on at pace and score um, by themselves. So this is a compromise. Um, as you say, Cavani hasn't particularly enjoyed his year in Manchester. Um, he has not had the ability to appreciate playing in front of fans. So part of the attraction of going to Manchester United, um, going to English football, was experiencing what English football would be like and what a full Old Trafford would be like. He's suffered issues with COVID. He, he's had been suspended for three games for a, a ill-considered social media post. Um, and yes, he has offers to go back to South America. He is well paid. Um, the deal that Manchester United gave him 
to stop him from going elsewhere in European football was one that that topped an offer that Benfica had made of six million net. Information I have is that Manchester United paid nine million net for the first season to Cavani, and the second season option was to be for eight million. And you're saying that they're now offered to improve on that. He got six million euro signing on bonuses, and there were further performance related bonuses in that initial deal. So not cheap for a a player who's now 34 years of age. But also, I think Cavani has demonstrated his quality. He is a proper number nine. Manchester United's attack looks a better functioning attack with him in it because they have a player who knows exactly how to run into the box, knows how to set up his his teammates, um, is an efficient finisher and and very good with the head, um, which is something that none of Manchester United's other forward players have in their armory. Um, so if you can't get Haaland, if you're not convinced the Glazers will put the money down to to buy Erling Haaland, then certainly Edinson Cavani is the is the sensible route to go down. And he knows the squad now. He knows the way of playing. Um, question is, can you convince him to uh, to take up an offer of another year in England um, when he has the potential to go to South America, play at the biggest clubs in South America, play Copa de Libertadores. And frankly, a player like Cavani, who's had the career he has had and played at the clubs he's had and the contracts he's had, financial issues might not be the the fundamental ones required to persuade him um, to spend one of the, the latter years of his career in England. Indeed, a lot of uh, noise coming out of Argentina about Boca Juniors wanting to send Cavani and give him a longer contract than the one on offer at Manchester United. Of course, it will not be as lucrative for the player. But as you say, Duncan, apart from anything else, having spent years at Paris Saint-Germain under the Qatari owners, I don't think he's struggling to buy himself uh, anything right now uh, with regards to the money he has in the bank. So uh, Manchester United may well have to look elsewhere for their number nine for next season uh, if they can't persuade Cavani to stay. Someone who's not having quite as good a time of it as Edson Cavani at Manchester United is Ed Woodward, who has broken uh, a record this week, Duncan. Uh, Not sure uh, if you were aware, but he's become the first man to be thrown under a bus twice in the space of five days by the Glazer family, um, having lost his job uh, in the wake of the ESL uh, fallout. He was then sent today to represent the club at a fans forum, and we're recording this on Friday, so just to give you some context with that. And it's fair to say, Duncan, um, he didn't exactly get a very warm reception. Uh, Not that he ever has enjoyed that necessarily anyway, but um, a particularly aggressive, but also, I think, uh, measured and considered response from Manchester United Fans Forum members to the recent ESL debacle, as well as the Glazer family ownership and the ongoing rumble that that has caused. Yeah, looks throwing himself under a bus. Uh, he uh, That's the, the story he's been trying to present, is that he threw himself under the bus over the Super League and that uh, he, he was opposed to the plans and felt they wouldn't work and, and resigned uh, as a point of principle. Um, some severe doubts about that uh, at Manchester United and in football in general. Some other Premier League executives, I think, commenting to journalists that uh, they know that... Uh, that Woodward was intimately involved in the planning for the Super League. Um, what you told us on the podcast last week was that he had been effectively sidelined and was was basically on on what was close to a form of gardening leave for the rest of his uh, contract at United, which is worth a substantial amount of money ends at the end of the year. So maybe no great surprise that um, he sent to something like the fans forum to be the uh, the sacrificial lamb rather than one of the Glazers or rather than one of the other executives at, at Manchester United because he, he has to do something to earn that. I should mention, Duncan, it is our information as well that there was a discussion about summer recruitment uh, this week at Carrington's uh, Manchester United's training ground and Woodward for the very first time 
was not there. That probably tells you as much as you need to know about what Woodward's position now is at Manchester United. Yeah, and that fits with information I have about other uh, areas of the the chief executive role that have been delegated to other individuals within the executive of Manchester United, which normally would have been done by Woodward. Um, What he tried to say to the forum was that um, you will have all read Joel's open letter to fans last week, apologising for the Super League decision. And I'd like to add my personal apology to the forum, then said that uh, they got it wrong over... Uh, failing to give enough weight to the essential principles and traditions of sporting merit, which are so vital to football. Uh, We want to restate our commitment to those traditions. I can assure you that we have learned our lesson from the events of the past week and we do not seek any revival of the Super League plans. Look, I think, again, it's very important to note what his position is at present and Uh, that he does not have full duties anymore, that he's already resigned his position. So how much worth can you as a Manchester United supporter put on an assurance from an outgoing chief executive who's resigned over the Super League um, stating that the club, the current ownership, the Glazers, will not seek a revival of the Super League plans? I think the the fans' response, the letter they drafted, I think was very well considered, very strong, very powerful, very aggressive. But um, they're talked about being disgusted, embarrassed and angry at the owner's actions in relation to the planning formation announcement of the Super League. Complained about the complete lack of engagement with fans, our players and manager being a gross mishandling of club affairs and one which we cannot forgive. It was an attack on fans and on clubs across the whole of football and we have simply had enough. Joel Glazer's subsequent apology is not accepted. Actions speak louder than words and he and his family have shown time and again that the sole motivation is personal profit at the expense of our football club. What they proposed and what they asked for as a as a sign that Joel Glazer actually was serious in his apology and serious in wanting to engage with a supporter base that he has, he and his family have basically not spoken to for almost the entire period of their ownership of the football club. Um, I think all of them are reasonable requests. The, number one, they asked uh, that they that Manchester United willingly and openly engage and promote the government-initiated fan-led review of football. Secondly, they asked that the Glazers appoint independent directors to the board whose sole purpose is to protect the interests of the club as a football club, not its shareholders. Third, work with Manchester United Sports Trust and supporters more broadly to put in place a a share scheme, so to allow supporters access to buy shares that importantly have the same voting rights as those held by the Glazer family because the majority of shares, accessible shares in Manchester United at present have minimal voting rights compared to the ones held by the family itself. Then to commit to a full consultation with season ticket holders on any significant changes to the future of the club, including the competitions we play in. And finally, to provide a commitment by Joe Glazer that costs incurred um, in relation to the creation of or withdrawal from the European Super League will be funded solely by the Glazer family and not by the club itself. And they note that the Cronkies at Arsenal have made that commitment already to Arsenal fans. I think all of those are reasonable requests. All of those, um, I think in situations like this, you often see supporters group asking for radical change to the operation of the club. And, and here you might have expected the fans to say, we want you to sell and, and move to a 50 plus, plus one structure, something that's been proposed quite widely in English football recently, but is completely impractical from the point of view of, of, of expecting the Glazers to do that. They haven't done that. They made coherent, sensible suggestions. Um, let's see how the Glazers respond to it. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that this from Woodward and this from the fans comes in the same week as... Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has asked about the Glazers and he says, I've had a very good relationship with the owners and with the club. Of course, they've employed me as the manager. They've listened to my views and that's my job to give my opinion and do my best for the club and for them. So you still have Solskjaer, I think, refusing to engage on these 
fundamental matters. Yes, he he criticised the Super League uh, once it had fallen apart, but no criticism yet from Solskjaer of the fundamental operation of the club and the way that the fans are suggesting and, and things that he was critical of. Um, remember publicly uh, when the Glazers were actually buying into the club in the first place. Something that struck me, um, Duncan, about the events of the Fans Forum and Woodward's response, etc., was here you've got a guy who's been working for the Glazers for almost 15 years. He's been executive vice chairman uh, since 2012. And He's obviously, as I said, been thrown under the bus uh, or threw himself under the bus as well. Um, he's got nothing to lose now. If he wanted to, he could have gone to the fans' forum and actually said what he thinks. He could have actually made himself into a voice of even just negotiation, contrition perhaps as well, and said, look, I get it. I know why you're angry. And I, I am with you on this, um, even though I'm only going to be here for another six to eight months. Uh, I will work in that time to try and reestablish, or sorry, not reestablish, establish for the first time a much better relationship between the fans of this club and the owners of this club. But instead, he continues to be the same old Ed Woodward, uh, you know, the man uh, who... Basically, nothing sticks to uh, in terms of blame and who will just basically say the right things, be a puppet for uh, the Glazer family in terms of ap apologising effectively for the things that they get wrong. And it it just it, it just seems irksome. And I, and I think it doesn't do any favours for the club and certainly the fans will see completely straight through it. Um, and the people that will benefit are the ones who fly banners over football pitches. <laughs> There's been a few of them uh, flown by the Manchester United supporters trying to get this message across. You, to you know, the that's my thing. You know, I always feel for the guys who fly, fly those planes, you know. <laughs> there needs to be needs to be turmoil in football to keep these guys in the job, especially during a pandemic. I mean, you said that Edward had nothing to lose. I think, unfortunately, that's wrong. He has eight months of salary the biggest salary for a chief executive in the Premier League to lose. And if he was to say stuff that the Glazers were unhappy with, he would have put that at risk. Um, it'll be interesting to see when he is no longer in the employ of the Glazers, once he has um, left the club. And that may well happen before uh, the full eight months of his contract are served up. It wouldn't surprise me if, if the Glazers decide to pay him off early and he leaves before the end of the year, especially once they have the new chief executive installed. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Woodward actually does come out and says anything critical about the running of Manchester United. When he's free to to publicly speak and, and to act on behalf of the supporters or, or try and be a negotiating voice, as you suggest, will he do that? Um, he has been in the employ of the Glazers as chief executive, as chief commercial officer from the very beginning. He was um, working at JP Morgan and was instrumental in creating the financial structures that allowed the Glazers to buy uh, Manchester United essentially with the club's own money. Um, his the majority of his professional career, I think, has been intimately associated with the Glazers. So. It would be a surprise if he did any of that and it will be interesting to see what he does do next. I, I know the idea was floated that he might get involved with the government review of football. Um, that seems to have come from people close to him. Um, can you imagine if the UK government decides to take Ed Woodward as, the, as a lead figure in a... In an exercise which is supposed to be involving involved in improving and uh, and evolving football, um, I can't imagine <laughs> it because it's this government, because it's Boris Johnson's government. Um, they are capable of of the most egregious errors and uh, and uh, some very interesting ways of of funding projects and pushing money towards um, supporters. But uh, really, it seems crazy to to uh, the, the idea that Woodward will step away from the wealthiest club in in English football and step into um, an important role in the governance of the game. 
Well, he certainly missed the boat on the interior design contract for <laughs> Boris Johnson's flat, more of which later in the Donkey Award. Better news for Manchester United fans, of course, is the 6-2 first leg victory uh, over Roma in the Europa League, which takes them effectively into the final of that competition. Uh, They've already effectively secured Champions League football for next season through their Premier League position. However, of course, winning a trophy and even more so Duncan, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer may have just managed to get past his first semi-final. He's no longer just the nearly man. He's the half-nearly man (laughs) since they haven't (laughs) won the trophy yet. So, um, look, they were very good, it has to be said. After a shaky first half, they certainly got themselves together and both Cavani and Pogba were outstanding in that victory. Yeah, an exceptional attacking performance in the second half, turning around a 2-1 deficit. To six two, um, very efficient in their in their uh, chance creation and uh, and the taking of chances and they overpowered the Roma side who look came into the game with su- sufficient injuries that they weren't able to name a, a full bench and and lost three players inside the the first thirty seven minutes and and were therefore unable to make a substitute in the second half. Um, it is as you say, it put Solskjaer finally. In a final, and um, and the favourite to win the final because, as has been the case throughout the entire period they've been in the Europa League, um, they have had the the biggest financial resource and the best playing resources of the of the teams in the competition, and they should be able to beat Arsenal or Villarreal, whichever one they they meet in the final. And I, and I think that's the context that that's important here because. Um, who have they beaten to get there? They're, they've beaten the fifth placed and the ninth placed teams in La Liga in Granada and Real Sociedad. The fifth and seventh placed teams in Serie A um, in Milan and Roma if they knock them out, which they should do. They needed a, a very generous VAR decision to beat the best of those sides, AC Milan, um, in that uh, the first leg at Old Trafford. Um, so these are all teams that, given the resources available, you'd expect them to be. And I think also more important to note is they're only in the Europa League because they got knocked out of the Champions League. Um, and they got knocked out of the Champions League because they lost to the 15th place team in Turkey's Super League. So this is kind of, with the resources available to them, this is kind of the minimum they should be achieving. But it, it um, it's being presented as some kind of uh, sensational success when uh, I think, again, that's a, a an, an impact of the Glazers on the club is that one of the most affluent clubs in European and world football has got to the stage where finishing second, hopefully they're in position to finish second, it's not guaranteed in the Premier League, but they should finish second in the Premier League to, to their City rivals who um, have already got two trophies effectively secured and have a good chance of winning their Champions League um, and getting to Europa League final and hopefully winning it is considered progress and considered success. It's sort of how the mighty have fallen under these owners is, I think, the the underlying message to it. certainly is. I'm sure that uh, Solskjaer uh, should be when the Europa League will be calling up Jose Mourinho and saying, see, see I can do it too. Um, <laughs> if that were to be the case, we will move on to what could be. Well, he, he should be doing that because remember he told us that winning trophies is an ego thing. So why not have a, an egotistical celebration if you finally get one? Indeed. This could be, despite the pandemic, despite the dwindling financial environment, that football finds itself in, in the majority, a perfect storm this summer for Paris Saint-Germain. We are told at the Transfer Window podcast that PSG were one of the clubs who played double agent uh, in terms of the ESL negotiations, which they were involved in and invited to, um, but chose instead to uh, decline the offer to join 
And it has been suggested, allegedly, that they then cooperated with Alexander Cheferin, the UEFA president, with regards to giving him information about that project, along with uh, the German uh, current champions, Bayern Munich. Now, Qatar holds the World Cup, of course, uh, a year in December. Um, and obviously that's something that that country has not just invested a huge amount of capital in, but also a huge amount of reputational uh, confidence with regards to how they're looked upon by the rest of the world um, in regards to their not just their sporting profile, but also, uh, as we have often discussed on the podcast, uh, the other issues involved in the Middle East with regards to sports washing and human rights. But for PSG, money is no option, as we know. They are currently renegotiating contracts with Neymar and Kylian Mbappe, two of the most valuable players in world football, uh, neither of whom have, have yet to commit to new deals at the club. However, as anyone who would have watched the first leg of the semi-final of the Champions League against Manchester City will have seen, there is a little bit, Duncan, of a lack of quality throughout that first eleven at PSG with regards to what you'd regard as an elite team. That being the case, um, as I said, with the financial uh, muscle that they have and the weakness that there is in other clubs being unable to either keep players or buy players, PSG might just be able to persuade their best player in Mbappe uh, to stay at the club by buying players around uh, him that they can build a team that is capable of winning the Champions League uh, multiple times in the future uh, should they not progress from the semi-final this season uh, as looks uh, kind of likely regarding the uh, 2-1 overturn in Paris ahead of the second leg at the Etihad. Duncan, you speak a lot to people who are involved with Mbappe, Neymar and indeed PSG in general. How would you rate the chances of both players being there next season? And would you agree that um, a heavy investment this summer in other areas of the team would probably be the most influential aspect of keeping those players at the Parc des Princes? Look, I think the Super League um, being ended for this season by Chefferin, um with the aid of Paris Saint-Germain and, and I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, the president of Paris Saint-Germain, Nasser Al-Khalifi, was uh, made chairman of the European Club Association in, um, in place of Andre Agnelli at Juventus in the same week that uh, the English clubs started to withdraw en masse from that Super League project. I think that has changed the framework in which these negotiations are going on this summer. Um, We've seen Mbappe, who has a, a year of contract left, uh, basically interviewing suitor clubs, um, making it clear that he'd be interested in a move either to the Premier League or La Liga. Um, the clubs he was looking at being Real Madrid, Barcelona, Liverpool, and also telling friends that he liked Manchester United. Um, we have seen a build up around those top strikers with Messi's uh, future in, in question as well. Paris Saint-Germain making an effort to take Messi from Barcelona under freedom of contract. Um, all of that going on in a framework in which those the majority of those top clubs knew they had three and a half billion euros of capital coming into them if they took on the Super League project. Um, uh, being handled by JP Morgan, but being financed from elsewhere. Um, therefore, there was a lot of money on the table to go chasing after strikers. And I think that's why you had this discussion and, and, and fight and that why you have Mino Raiola asking 30 million net for, um, for Erling Haaland, because there was an expectation that there would be capital available to do these kind of transfers. Um, we've told you on the podcast that Mbappe is looking at a renewal 
but what he wants to see is an improvement in the squad. PSG are still behind Lille in Ligue 1 this season. They, ha- they, they risk losing the title when they, they have massive resource kit compared to every other team in France. Um, if Mbappe is to stay there, he wants, as, as you say, to, to know that the team can be competitive at the very top level for the, the, the period of his new contract. Neymar had got very close to renewing and there is an agreement in principle over the shape of a new contract, but then stepped away from those negotiations and um, and tried to see if he could get to Barcelona uh, and use his uh, friendship with Lionel Messi, use John Laporta's intention to uh, to extend Messi's contract and keep him at Barcelona. Um, something you talked about in this this week's earlier podcast, in which I think we've seen a number of news organisations around the globe following up on what you reported on on those talks between Laporta and Messi. Um, Neymar wanted to see if he could get in on the act and, and get to Barcelona um, with the help of of Messi. Um, those two things become a lot harder now. So whether this was intentional or not, the the ramification of the Super League falling apart is that Qatar and PSG are in a far more powerful position in European and world football. Not only in, in terms of things like being chairman of the ECA, not only in being considered an ally by the president of UEFA, Alexander Cheferin, who who's whose own future, whose own um, power over European football was was placed in serious jeopardy by the Super League move, but also because, as you say, they're a nation-state funded club. Um, they don't have an issue with raising money to buy players. The only issue they have is whether UEFA will allow them to spend it on players. What, to what degree of severity financial fair play will be implemented? Chefferin's al- already indicated that that will be changed um, with his new um, horrendous Champions League format, Swiss system model that he's he's bringing into play. Um, so w- the, it's likely that it's going to be easier for PSG to spend on both retaining players and signing top players. And it's definite that their rivals across Europe are going to have a lot less money to play with this summer and likely in future summers than they would have had if the, the Super League project has gone through. So who are the big winners of Super League falling apart, um, PSG, I think, are certainly one of those. It is uh, an intriguing situation um, where you have uh, the president of UEFA uh, in a sort of cosy relationship with the owners of one European super club uh, and, of course, their uh, fact that they are putting on the World Cup in 18 months' time, uh, obviously, uh, Qatar uh, have and want to spend uh, the amount of money that is required to make people sit up and take notice of them as a state, of them as a uh, centre of sporting excellence uh, worthy of hosting the world's greatest sporting tournament as well, Duncan. And um, I just think that I get a feeling speaking to agents and chief executives uh, coming up into this summer transfer window that PSG uh, will, will make a big push in the market uh, in order to showcase uh, their owners as a genuine uh let's just say, influencers in the world game uh, ahead of that uh, the, the showpiece tournament in Qatar uh, in December 2022. So I think uh, there are a lot of, and I have been, <laughs> been reading the runes, as it were, uh, a lot of worried clubs out there are looking at their best players and thinking, oh no, we know what's going to happen now. Uh, so yeah, they do have um, a very, very privileged and uh, serious position that they can take uh, this summer, which of course would take them through to uh, a year um, in the summer of 2022 ahead of that World Cup finals in Qatar. And nothing would please the Qatari owners more 
then obviously Paris Saint-Germain being champions of Europe uh, and therefore taking them into uh, the World Cup finals as a very, very serious player in world football. Liverpool lanes may well have been uh, slightly confused and some on the red side uh, probably a little bit annoyed at reports that Felipe Coutinho, a former hero of, of course, Anfield, is being courted by Everton uh, with regards to joining them this summer. Now, Coutinho obviously has not enjoyed the best of times during his spell at Barcelona since his transfer. However, uh, he uh, has been marketed by his agent, Kia Jirabchian, with regards to finding him a club where he would play regular football and get back to the kind of form that saw him rated amongst the world's top players when indeed he was a Liverpool player. However, Everton doesn't seem like uh, the most obvious fit and it's our information at the Transfer Window podcast that Carlo Ancelotti, while happy to have the player at Goodison, is slightly uh, concerned that that will upset the player that he brought in and who he has encouraged and persuaded to move to Merseyside, i.e. James Rodriguez, as a number 10, and who indeed has repaid faith in Ancelotti with some excellent performances. Uh, Duncan, we both know someone who uh, was in a meeting with Everton about recruitment and was surprised when uh, to find that Jurabchin was also in that meeting uh, with club executives uh, because he has that kind of influence. Uh, it has been uh, a subject of contention about his uh, relationship with uh, Arsenal's sporting director, Edu, and the fact that he has done several transfers to Arsenal in the last 12 months as well. Now, I'm told that Coutinho is happy to come back to English football. However, he does have some reservations with regards to the kind of reception he will get having been an icon at Liverpool and then turning out in the blue of Everton. Now, you can't play two number 10s, Duncan, unless you're playing one of them as a false nine. I know that sounds like some kind of riddle, and it is a riddle. <laughs> but um, would you think Coutinho would be a good fit for, for Everton, or do you think James is the better option? I think you can play two number 10s. I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is doing a very good job of playing two number 10s at the moment, and he's constructed a, a formation that manages to get Paul Pogba and Bruno Fernandes in um, the team at the same time. They respect each other, they play well together. Um, Pogba's nominally off the left wing, but if you look at average positions, you'll see Bruno Fernandes and Pogba basically in front of the Fred McTominay holding midfield. And um, and, it, and it works from a creative perspective for, for Manchester United. Yeah. So you can do it, you can, you can mm. set your team up, whether you can win uh, titles doing it, uh, if you don't have the the quality of players around them, is another matter, and whether it's the right. I would fit. say different pl- different players, though, Duncan. Yeah, Pogba, they are, Pogba and Bruno, uh, they will take turns at, at playing the advanced role, and they also uh, not so much Pogba, but Fernandez has got a real work ethic about him. He'll track back. Yeah, if if he's in the mood, uh, Pogba will do the same if he's in the mood. But what I'm saying is that James and Coutinho are not noted for being unselfish. And Pogba's a physically strong um, and and large individual, so you have that aerial presence about him, whereas James and Coutinho are basically the same. Yeah. And Fernandez is a very, very competitive character. Yeah, so you're right. In, in terms of the structure Everton have, um, it seems strange that you'd want to bring a Philip Coutinho and try and add that into the system when you have James Rodriguez being so effective and, and being a player that Carlo Ancelotti trusts and knows well and has worked with uh, at a number of clubs and um, and it, you know put put himself on the line for, in, in fact, at, at Real Madrid um, when, when the Florentino Perez wanted other players used in the team. Um, I think with Coutinho, we see this... Uh, pretty much every summer since Barcelona decided that they need to get him off the books and he still has over two years of contract left 
a, a very substantial contract. We all know that Barcelona have massive debts and, and huge issues to resolve and have to come up with a very creative way of shifting players out um, to allow them to make the kind of stellar signing that Jean Laporta wants to start his his uh, second period as, as president with. Coutinho is obviously someone that if you wanted to manufacture a deal in the way that they did with Artur and Miran Pjanic last summer with Juventus where you put an artificial price on each player's head, move them between the two clubs in supposedly two independent transfers and make the books look better because of that, you could try and do that and that's what Barcelona will be trying to do. And Kia Jarabshin has been charged with finding a club he can offload Coutinho too. Um, Everton have a bit of money. They have a very rich owner. Um, and Jarabshin has a good relationship with uh, with executive level people at, at Everton. So I, I don't think it's a surprise that this is being discussed and proposed. Um, I would recommend that those guys listen to what Carlo Ancelotti would like done in the market if they're prepared to put that amount of money into a deal um, I would suggest it could be better spent in other areas of the Everton team and I suspect Carlo Ancelotti would agree on that I think that's correct Duncan um, Carlo is long enough in the tooth uh, and long enough in football management to uh, know how to organise a team and how to uh, recruit in the right areas for what is needed. I doubt very much that he thinks Coutinho is anything more than a luxury purchase uh, on behalf of either the ownership or the um, coerce uh, nature of uh, Kia Jarabjum with regards to um, moving his player somewhere where he can get playing time. Um, at the same time, uh, <sighs> Ancelotti, in my experience, I've known him for a long time now, um, going right back to his days at Milan. Um, and that is that he, while he's very diplomatic and very reconciliatory with regards to his relationship with club executives and what they think is good for the club, um, he will also be strong uh, when he needs to be with regards to what he thinks is best for the team. And you're right in saying that having worked with Rodriguez both at Real Madrid and, and Bayern Munich, uh, he will not want to upset James Rodriguez or upset what he sees as the equilibrium of his Everton side. Um, yes, they've dropped off a little bit in the past three months with regards to uh, their winning ratio, but he sees this as a long-term project. He certainly isn't um, thinking about uh, anything but the, the longer-term success of Everton as well. And he sees Rodriguez as a central part of that. So bringing Coutinho in, who is obviously younger, uh, who has got more experience in English football, etc., etc., could indeed upset the rhythm of his team. And that would be something that Carlo is very much aware of. Um, so it will be interesting to see if uh, Kia Jarabachun uh, manages to sell this one in to uh, the people he knows at Everton uh, over the head, if you like, of Carlo Ancelotti. Um, but, you know, I've never known a, a manager yet, Duncan, who when offered a very good player, didn't take him anyway, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> so, you know, as Chairman Oft always say to you, I've never met a manager yet who doesn't say I need more players. So uh, we shall see what happens. Yeah, look, I think it should also be noted that Coutinho is not that much younger than than James. Um, he's 28 now. And also, he hasn't played any football since December because he ruptured a meniscus. He's due back at the end of next month. But um, that's probably not the best time to be signing him either after what can be a significant injury. The one thing that Everton have to factor in is that they have Hamez on a two-year contract with a one-year option for a third year. So if they're behind Ancelotti and they think he is central to the team, then at some point they're going to have to um, secure that option or, or put him in a longer 
contract and, and continue to build around him. Indeed. And we shall see how that develops. And of course, as you know, we will bring you the news first here on the Transfer Window podcast. Another player who is looking for game time and becoming increasingly frustrated at his lack of it is Tammy Abraham at Chelsea, subject of much speculation with regards to what his future holds, having had very, very little game time since Thomas Tuchel arrived at Stamford Bridge as manager. It's our understanding that Abraham uh, has spoken to people close to him, expressed his extreme frustration at the fact that he remains the club's top goalscorer this season, but is not getting the chance to play, with Tuchel instead preferring to play a false nine and then using a striker from the bench. Tammy Abraham also has, and I expect, uh, remains to have uh, ambitions to make Gareth Southgate's squad for this summer's European Championship finals. But with what's uh, been going on with his Chelsea career, it seems unlikely that he would be in front of other players, such as even Ollie Watkins of Aston Villa, who recently made his full England debut. Um, this is a strange one, Duncan, in the sense that Abraham has worked very hard by going out on loan uh, before Frank Lampard became manager to prove himself and did prove himself. And then has had, okay, not a brilliant season, but certainly not a bad season uh, under Lampard before he was sacked in January. And now uh, Big Tams come in and decide that he's not for him. He can't do anything about that because, of course, there's no transfer window open until the summer. So if he continues to not play football uh, until he gets a potential move somewhere else, he will not make the squad for the Euros unless there are significant omissions or injuries elsewhere. Um, who's, who's failing here? Is it Abraham or is he being failed by Chelsea? Abraham's still Chelsea's leading scorer this season, which is quite remarkable given how little game time he's had under Tuchel. Um, so he has 12 goals and 31 appearances. For Tuchel, he's played six games, four starts, scored once, 216 minutes of football. Under Frank Lampard, albeit over a season and a half, he got 72 games, 29 goals, 47 starts, over 4,000 minutes of football. Um, I can see why Abraham is frustrated but I can also see why Tuchel is not using him because I'm not entirely convinced that Tammy Abraham is the first choice number nine for a club like Chelsea. Um, he well, he's not. <laughs> and sh or, or should be, or should be. He, he does score. He did score a lot of goals for Chelsea under Lampard, but it's that ability to take chances when it really matters. I think is what a club like that is looking for and, and part of the reason why Manchester United are, are looking, are still trying to solve long term their, their number nine issue. Tuchel has to play Timo Werner. He has he came into the club partly because Marina Gramskaya was unhappy with Lampard, had a huge amount of her personal capital invested in the, the signings of, of Timo Werner and Kai Havertz, wanted them to succeed. And part of the remit for Tuchel is to make them successful at the club. Werner is struggling badly. So if I'm Thomas Tuchel, and I know that it's unlikely that Werner moves out of the club um, because the boss wants Werner to su succeed, and I know that Werner has issues, um, I'd want to get a new number nine in who, who, who can score the goals. And to do that, the sensible one to sell is the English, the young English player who's frustrated about his lack of playing time, desperate to go to another club, and hopefully you can get a reasonable transfer fee from him in the market. So I, I can understand how this position has evolved the way it has. And I think maybe I'll be proved wrong down, down the years when Abraham goes elsewhere or if he manages to survive at Chelsea and push himself back into the line and he becomes that, that striker. But I don't 
see that he is the long-term answer for Chelsea. Therefore, it's understandable that Tuchel wants someone else. One thing we know for sure, Duncan, is that our listeners um, will remind us on Twitter if indeed he does become <laughs> 30 goals he's a striker. I'm <laughs> sorry, I should say we'll be reminding you <laughs> that he has become. What was Frank Lampard's view of Tammy Abraham when he was using him at Chelsea? Did he feel he was the player who was going to be his his number nine in a five-year, six-year, seven-year spell at Chelsea that was going to win the Champions League for him? He had a lot of hope in Abraham's potential. And I think he still does have that, actually, even though obviously he's not managing him now. Um, I think what Frank Lampard saw in Abraham was an instinctive player, but one who could be coached to be better. Uh, remember, Frank played for the best part of his career at Chelsea with one of the greatest strikers of the Premier League era, Didier Drogba. Yeah. But what Abraham doesn't have that Drogba did is physical presence. Abraham is tall, but he doesn't have the muscle capacity that Drogba has to bully defenders and to make them scared of him. Uh, Abraham depends more on pace and agility. Um, what I think Frank Lampard was hoping uh, that Abraham could be coached into was... Um, finding himself in better positions at the right time in the box. Uh, if you look back at Abraham's time uh, under Lampard and, and indeed under Tuchel, um, there are, are many instances where he arrives too late for a good cross uh, which has come in and misses it by half a second when it's basically a tap-in. Um, and that's probably one of the greatest uh, sort of, I wouldn't say errors, but certainly disadvantages of where he is in his career right now. Because if you're not going to be a Drogba who can score right foot, left foot, outside the box, inside the box, header, bully opponents, then you have to be absolutely uh, clinical in the way you finish the chances that you do get. As you said, it's somewhat remarkable that he still remains Chelsea's top scorer. But Chelsea shouldn't be a club whose top scorer on the verge of May the 1st has 12 goals. Not when you consider the amount of money they've invested. That's that's where it's fallen Partic down. Particularly in attacking players uh, and that the imbalance of money that was invested in attacking players on the behest of Marina Kranovskaya when Frank Lampard was suggesting it went elsewhere. Here, here's a tongue-in-cheek scenario. Tottenham keep failing to secure the coaches they want um, after Nagelsmann decided to join Bayern Munich and uh, Eric Ten Hag, who I'm, I'm told was approached by Tottenham, uh, signs a new contract to Ajax and Brendan Rodgers, as you told us earlier in the week, um, went public with what you said to us on the podcast earlier in the week, that he wasn't likely to take the, uh, the Tottenham job. So they end up taking Frank Lampard. Harry Kane manages to extract himself from Tottenham to go somewhere where he can win trophies and, and Lampard signs Tammy Abraham as the replacement. Whoa, that's a nice merry-go-round. <laughs> like Tongue-in-cheek, remember, tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, we did say in the podcast, didn't we, that Chelsea were prioritising a, a, a number nine, an out-and-out striker, because Tuchel wants to play Werner and Havertz either side with Mason Mount in behind of a target, number proper number nine point striker. Um, I've been told just this week that Lukaku, who is someone who Tuchel greatly admires and thinks would be the perfect fit, ironic given that Chelsea sold him to Everton, obviously, um, will not be available if and when, and it should be when, Inter win the title, they should be able to retain, uh, even with... Uh, the difficulties with regarding debt and lack of investment there. But um, certainly Lukaku is very happy in Milan and, and doesn't necessarily want to leave to come back to Chelsea. So that could be another option um, which is not going to be uh, necessarily possible. 
uh, for Chelsea with regards to recruiting a new striker. So, um, yeah, they've got the work cut out for them this summer with actually finding the player to complete the jigsaw, if you like, because as I already said, 12 goals uh, as the highest goal scorer for Chelsea in a season is not good enough to win the league. That's for sure. Speaking of spending money, it is the second podcast of the week. And as we keep saying, it is awards season. And thankfully, we don't have the same problem as the BAFTAs and the Oscars, etc., because uh, we don't have to hold uh, ceremonies which are done on Zoom because we're doing it in audio, the old, st- the old school way. Um, but this uh, week's Donkey Award, um, we have decided to dedicate to the Prime Minister of the UK, and that is because uh, the money that was spent on renovating his Downing Street flat, uh, which no one actually knows where it came from uh, as yet, uh, and an inquiry has actually now been uh, started with regards to finding the answer to that question, we've decided that we're just going to do a Donkey Award on the Boris Johnson Award for spending money on luxury you don't pay for yourself and probably don't need. Duncan, I'm going to open the envelope. And as I said um, a couple of weeks ago, the Academy have been very kind in presenting us with uh, their excess golden envelopes from uh, this year's Oscar ceremony, which hopefully will last us another few months. Or did. I'll tell you what, they're good quality. Maybe some gold in them. Uh, so, uh, the nominations for the Boris Johnson Award for luxury uh, that you don't need or can't afford. First one, Duncan, is Fernando Torres, who at the time was the most expensive transfer between two English clubs in the history of the game uh, when he left Liverpool for Chelsea. And um, I think it's fair to say, except for the fact that he lost possession in that infamous semi-final in the Camp Nou, which bizarrely left him in the position to then run up the pitch and score the equalising goal, which put Chelsea in the final um, one-on-one, didn't really return any of that 50 million quid uh, that Roman Abramovich decided to pay for him. The second is the Brazil legend uh, who went... Uh, from AC Milan to Real Madrid at a time when Real Madrid probably could have done with maybe five players in other positions rather than creative central midfield um, but bought Kaká instead because uh, he was a big name they just didn't check his medical records properly uh, before doing so a problem which Chelsea encountered of course with Torres as well and the third is a more recent one um, and some people might remember this guy, although we would forgive you for forgetting him. But Aiden Hazard, who went to Real Madrid, would you believe, two seasons ago? This season, he has made 10 appearances and scored two goals and has been absolutely haunted by injury after injury since moving to Santiago Bernabeu. Probably a luxury that Madrid didn't need and one they couldn't afford a bit like Boris Johnson's £895 a roll wallpaper which of course has now been christened Wallpaper Gate so Hazard Gate Duncan who's going to be the winner of this week's donkey? Uh, it's look at a very similar category of players superstars um, that other clubs have coveted who were purchased for huge transfer fees some of the biggest transfer fees in the history of the game all of whom came with substantial physical problems. Um, in Fernando Torres and Kaká's case, problems that they never recovered from. Hopefully in Eden Hazard's case, he will recover from it and we'll see with the footballer he was again. But I'm going to go for Kaká because I actually think he was the best of those players when he was fit. He was a sensational footballer, a combination of pace and uh, quality on the ball, great decision-making, wonderful finisher. Um and uh, Madrid, not only did they make the mistake of buying him when he had a, a knee injury, um, had had surgery on it to play in the World Cup, 
again similar to Fernando Torres um, and that caused a sort of uh, cavalcade of, of injuries in other areas of his body as, as they tried to compensate for the, the weakness in his knee. So they did, not only did they make the mistake of buying him, they also went a new manager came in and recommended that they sell him the following summer because the physical problems weren't going to be fixed. They didn't listen and kept the player and ended up with a with a massive um, financial loss on their books. So Kaká gets the, the Boris Johnson award, although it's a, that's a very strange coupling. I can't imagine the two of them getting on <laughs> well together. So congratulations to Kaká for uh, winning this week's donkey. Uh, we will try and track him down and send him the Golden Statuette, which of course is the most coveted award in world football. This has been the second Transfer Window podcast of the week. Uh, if you uh, want to engage us, please do so on social media at Transfer Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. Also, uh, log into iTunes, give us a five-star review. Uh, we'd be very grateful for that. If you're listening on YouTube, then please turn on all your notifications and you'll get to hear us first. We will be back with you next week. But until then, have a great weekend. Stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Hey.